Hey ladies, how you doing out there, you gangsters and you senior citizens of the world? I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm starting my new podcast with Anchor. It's free, so I thought, why not give it a try? There's creation tools there that allow you to edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute my podcast, so it will be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, at home. During the coronavirus epidemic, this is where we're going to be. So, it's a mandatory call to action that we... Take anchor. Beep about letting her compete in pageants? Yeah, probably. Yeah. But your lesson was, what if we inadvertently exposed her to the killer? Obviously, you don't want to keep him locked in the house, but um, it's just an awareness. Not everyone around you is a nice, good person. A re-examination of the DNA evidence using new technology found an unidentified male's DNA on John Bonet's underpants, essentially clearing the Ramsey family. This is the only case where I think I have fundamentally turned as much as I have, thinking probably to no way over the course of an intense investigation. The new district attorney, Mary Lacey, took the extraordinary step of formally exonerating the Ramses. But vindication didn't come soon enough for the Ramses. Patsy died from ovarian cancer in 2006. Today, John is remarried and lives a quiet life in Michigan. I struggled a lot with forgiveness and what that meant. The first phase was, I can't forgive this creature. Let me get my hands on him. We won't need a trial. Well, no one would blame you for being angry and yeah. bitter. And, and I was for a time, absolutely. But but you can't stay there and, and because it's, it's damaging to you as a person. It's, it's a gift you give yourself to let it go. As for Burke, he's now a software engineer and once again back in the headlines. It's sort of surprising that Burke gave up his anonymity. And I think in retrospect it was probably a mistake. I don't think he came across that well even though he's totally innocent and yet 20 years later john benet's case still an unsolved murder the boulder police chief releasing this video statement we remain focused on this investigation and finding justice for john benet her murder remains america's great whodunit mystery still haunting the public imagination the notion that these rich parents might have killed their child was an amazing question slash soap opera slash mystery. And it was a true unsolved mystery to this day. And it will never be solved. For Nightline, I'm Juju Chang in New York. Thanks so much for talking to us, Mary, and a lot of perspective in terms of how your uncle, uh, Donald Trump, is going to react to this news. First and foremost, you wrote me a funny text. I hope it's okay if I share it with uh, this audience. But you said, uh, consider yourself lucky that you're not out on the golf course with him right now. Um, what? Tell me, uh, first of all, do you know who he was playing golf with? Because I haven't been able to find that out. He was playing in Sterling, Virginia. 
And what do you think the reaction to the fact that this this press this race has been called for Joe Biden is? Oh, he's not going to be able to accept that reality uh, for a very long time, if ever. So, uh, you know, I, I think we've seen in the last couple of days, last few days, since uh, early Wednesday morning, how badly he's going to handle this. He uh, claimed that he won when he had not, uh, when votes were still being counted. He's been undermining people's belief and faith in the legitimacy of an American election, which is unheard of in our history and cannot be forgotten. Uh, that that was not um, that was not something to be taken lightly. The difference now, however, uh, is as much damage as he tried to do, and, and quite frankly did. Um, he's entirely ineffectual now. The results are the results. It doesn't matter if he accepts them or not. It doesn't matter if he makes a concession speech or gives Joe Biden a phone call. All that matters now is that. Whatever Donald does or does not do, there will be a peaceful transfer of government. There will be, uh, you know, the American people, for the uh, for the most part, will accept the results of the election. And, you know, he's just going to make life miserable for himself and everybody around him, including those who are unfortunate enough to be in the golf, golf course with him. Well, I mean, does who gives uh, him the bad news? I mean, are there any people around him who can actually speak to him in a rational way and say, this is the situation. Uh, basically, you lost and we have to figure out a path forward for you. Um, or are, is everyone around him basically reinforcing his point of view? Well, unfortunately, I think we've seen that it's the latter. Uh, you know, I just heard recently that People on his team are continuing with these frivolous lawsuits. They are not accepting the results of the election. Uh, and it's, I, you know, it's hard for me to understand why they think that's a good strategy. Because all it does is continue to undermine any claim to legitimacy he ever had. So, um... I, I put it down to fear and unwillingness to confront him and, um, you know, the recognition that they probably know that he's not going to accept it. Uh, and the people around him are, are quite frankly, uh, they're there for a reason. You know, we, we cannot claim that these people have the high ground or that they have any kind of courage. So... It's going to be very interesting, not not necessarily pleasant, but interesting to see how it plays out. You know, people are asking, you know, are, are you you're completely estranged from the most people in the family, correct? Mm -hmm. Or uh, is there anyone in the family you speak to, Mary, at this point? Uh, no. Um, and that's it's been that way for quite some time. So that's that's it has nothing to do with um the election, or it actually doesn't even have anything to do with the book because it was long before that that I'd stop that we had stopped speaking. So. Someone's asking about uh, if you how you think Ivanka, Don Jr., uh, Eric, uh, I guess Kimberly Guilfoyle, uh, this whole posse of, of people around him will 
will react and are they just basically yesing him to death? I'm sure they are. Uh, one thing we need to understand about their Donald's relationship with his children is that they are entirely transactional, but they're also conditional. So his kids know what they need to do in order to stay on Donald's good side. Uh, also, I think they're probably uh, biding their time because on the one hand, they know upon which side their bread is buttered. But on the other hand, this may not go well for Donald. He is now, uh, at least uh, he will be in January, open to prosecution, uh, open to investigations. There are going to be a lot of people who rightfully want him held accountable for all of the egregious harm he's done to our country. And I, I, I would not be surprised if his children were also involved in some of the alleged crimes that the New York State AG and the SDNY are currently investigating. Are you worried about, you know, I think a lot of people are trepidatious, Mary, about his decision-making skills and some of the things that he'll be doing until he is no longer president. It was interesting. I heard that Joe Biden was assembling a COVID-19 task force right now, but he, as president-elect, has so much authority until he's inaugurated. So that's 74 days. Um, are you concerned about what kind of decisions and potential damage might be done? between now and the inauguration? I'm very concerned about it. I think all of us should be concerned about it. It is a ridiculously long time uh, for a transition. I'm not entirely sure why it's so long. But in this particular case, it's, it's, it's way too long because Donald is not uh, faring well, but uh, he's vindictive, he's desperate, and he's going to need to do something to uh, gain some kind of equilibrium, you know, uh, again, he's never going to accept this loss. He's going to have to spin it in a particular way, but it is a blow, whether he's consciously aware of it or not. So he may well use the power he continues to have until January 20th to exact some forms of revenge. So we all need to be prepared for that. You know, we it could come in the form of outrageous executive orders that further uh, weaken us in some ways. It could come in the form of pardons that demoralize us. It could come in the form of, and this is the one I'm, I'm most worried about, uh, doing everything in his power to delegitimize, at least in the eyes of his more fanatical followers, the incoming administration. We need right now somebody like President Biden and Vice President Harris to bring us together as far as that's possible because we've got to start healing the wounds that have been inflicted upon us over the last four years and if Donald is actively trying to undermine them that's going to be so much harder. Yeah that's a very good point in many ways I described him as the salt being poured into the wound of our massive divide and yeah. And I'm curious, you know, and, and I mentioned before you joined us, Mary, that you cannot deny that more than 70 million Americans uh, supported 
President Donald Trump and wanted him to be reelected and serve another four years. And I'm curious, what hold do you think, I mean, as a psychologist and someone who has studied as a clinical psychologist and understands people's sort of pathologies, why do you think he has such a hold on his followers? Um, I guess there, there's, you can't necessarily generalize, but are there are there pockets of his followers that his whole cult of personality appeals to? Sure, and and honestly, that's the least worrisome thing because there always are. You know, there's always going to be twenty two to twenty eight percent of any population that's going to be the worst among us, right? And like one one of the uh, uh, functions of liberal democracy is to contain those people. What's happened in the last four years is that, well, certainly between 2016 and 2018, 100% of the federal government represented and empowered those people. And it just sort of metastasized. So uh, we're, we're going to have to, we have a lot of work to do in this country in many ways, but one of the things we're going to figure out is how not just that 22 to 28 percent thought that four more years of this was a good idea, but that another 10, 15 percent did. That number is devastating to me. And it's it's one of the reasons why this Biden-Harris victory, as necessary as it was, as heartening as it is, um, is not without um, concern. You know, it's it's not like we can just be completely happy because the repudiation of Donald and his enablers that we needed didn't happen to the degree it needed to happen. So, um, I mean, honestly, I, I'm hanging on to the hope. I'm hanging on to the good stuff. No more Bill Barr, no more Jared, no more Mike Pompeo and on and on and on. We have Joe Biden. We have the first female vice president, the first African-American, the first South Asian-American. I mean, it's extraordinary. We have to hang on to the good stuff. But uh, the fact that in excess of 70 million people voted for four more years of this is quite frankly soul crushing. I want to, I'm curious, you observed him for many years. Um, it's hard to get inside his head at any point, but also to get inside his head right now. But um, what kind of behavior do you believe he might be exhibiting right now in the wake of this, uh, you know, blow to his ego and to his presidency? I would guess that he, he's in a state of denial, but, you know, he's also being confronted with the reality that is almost impossible for him to process. Uh, my guess is that he's in a rage the likes of which he's never experienced before, because we need to remember he's never uh, he's never been in a situation that somebody else couldn't get him out of, whether through money or influence or looking the other way, what have you. So it's one of the weird things about Donald. He's actually never won anything because he's always had somebody else throwing millions of dollars at him. He's always had somebody overlooking his debts. He's always... Uh, cheated, lied, and steal, stolen to, to, to get what he wants. He can't do that now. So in addition to being enraged by the fact of the loss, he's des made desperate by the fact that he's entirely trapped by it as well. 
it is not the White House, as I said, or well, I said golf course, but now it's, I'm assuming finished playing golf. Um, although there is a poetic justice to the fact that Fox News called the race for Biden while Donald was playing golf. Um, the White House is not going to be a comfortable place for any or potentially safe place for anybody to be. And I mean safe in addition to the fact that they all keep getting COVID because they are incapable of uh, taking this virus seriously. Someone asked if he could be suicidal. I mean, that's not part of his pathology. No, no, that, that is that is beyond my comprehension to believe that that hap would happen. Um, what I would say, though, is that if Donald feels like he's going down, he'll take the rest of us down with him. And he actually, that's what he was trying to do. What that speech that he gave, or whatever it was, early Wednesday morning, uh, that was an attempted coup. And we, we can't, you know, tiptoe around this. Luckily, it wasn't successful. But he was actively encouraging people to protest. We have poll workers who are who need security now when they're getting death threats. You know, it's it's insanity. The longer we went without a clear result, the more that was happening. You know, he has so violated almost every norm during the course of his presidency. And there are norms that have been followed uh, for a very long time when it comes to a peaceful transition of power. You know, saw, even though it felt slightly uncomfortable, President Obama, First Lady Michelle Obama, inviting uh, President-elect Trump, Melania, to the White House. You saw Hillary Clinton at the inauguration of your uncle. Uh, will any of these norms be recognized in your view? No, um, I, I don't believe any. Look, there's, there's no 100% guarantee, although I would say it's a 99.999% chance he doesn't go to the inauguration. It's extraordinarily unlikely that he uh, calls uh, President Biden. Uh, it's extremely unlikely he concedes in any way. Um, he will do the opposite of help the incoming administration with uh, the uh, transfer of power. And I honestly, I think that's better because it's just another way to help people understand who this person is. He has no honor. He has no grace. Um, and you know, to put it in, in uh, the most basic terms, he's a sore loser. So you you doubt that he'll the inauguration, which will be so strange, right? Uh, you know, I was... Elsewhere. The year was 1996. The Macarena at the top of the charts. I love books. Oprah started a book club. The country had just re-elected President Bill Clinton. As for the Ramses. John and Patsy, six-year-old Jean Benet, and big brother Burke, age nine, they were the very picture of his life. Wealthy, thanks to John's thriving computer business. Patsy was a high society woman from Atlanta who knew how to decorate her house. John was a smart guy who had just been nominated or voted as Entrepreneur of the Year. So really, the two of them were high society for Boulder. Patsy had just beaten ovarian cancer and was celebrating her 40th birthday. This was a Christmas that promised to be as merry and bright as the Ramsey's video greeting card. 
We'd like to welcome you to our home and wish you a very Merry Christmas. She decorated that place with Christmas trees in every room. Family friend, Pam Barde. She was a Southern belle. Everything was about entertaining. You say neither, and I say neither. Patsy always liked to be in the limelight, and she was in the pageant system. Let's throw the whole thing off. This is an interesting item I'd like you to see. The name Jean Benet was a fanciful hybrid of her father's, John Bennett. Pigtails, jeans, beautiful smile. I mean, she was just a mischievous, fun little girl. At the age of four, she began following her mother's footsteps. That Christmas night of 1996, the Ramsey family had been out at a party at a friend's house. As they would tell Barbara Walters in an interview several years later, they got home well after dark. John Bonet was asleep when we arrived home. We took her to bed, got her to bed, set the alarm, and went to, uh, went to sleep. Before dawn the next morning, Patsy was the first one up. As she headed down this spiral staircase, something catches her eye. Several pieces of paper. There were three pages neatly laid across one of the runs of the stairway. Pages scrawled with a handwritten, heart-stopping message. It was a ransom note. Of all of the evidence left behind, that ransom note is the most baffling. Reporter Diane Diamond has covered the story from the beginning. She says the author of the ransom note seemed to know a lot about the family. The demand for $118,000 was close to the exact amount of John Ramsey's bonus that year. A ransom note is not that long. A ransom note says, I have your child, I want a million dollars, I'll call you later. This is two and a half pages long. Whoever does that? I just remember when I read, we have your daughter, it just, that's overwhelming fear and I just dashed back up the stairs as fast as I could and pushed her door open and then and then I just screamed for John Jean Benet had vanished we are kidnapping hurry please explain to me what's going on are you happy Ramsey I'm the mother oh my god please I'm okay I'm sitting in office now okay please. do you know how long she's been gone no I don't please we just got out and she's right here Oh my God, please. The call was made to 911, and within two or three minutes, Patsy Ramsey's on the phone to her friends and neighbors. Come on over. John was also making calls. He said, they've got her. What do you mean they've got her? They've kidnapped John Binet. She's gone. And people were streaming through that house. They were in the kitchen. They were in the living room. They're all talking. They're passing the ransom note around. The police should have secured that scene by telling everybody, get out. I'm sorry, this is a crime scene. It was just one of many mistakes police made that day. The first detective on the scene also did something that would radically compromise the case. Linda Art tells the restless John... Why don't you look around the house, see if anything is missing or uh, looks strange. Start at the top and go to the bottom. But he didn't do that. He went to the basement first where, of course, whoa, he finds his daughter's body. I saw her lying on the floor with a white blanket. Her hands were tied above her head. She had tape over her mouth. Her eyes were closed. And lo and behold, when John Ramsey finds the body, you now have John Ramsey at the crime scene. John Ramsey picked that little girl up, took the tape off of her mouth, and dragged her upstairs in his arms. And then the coup de grace. He grabs a blanket, which is full of 
who knows what kind of contaminants, and throws it over the body. Right then and there, the police investigation was tainted. Jean Benet had been strangled with a length of cord, a vicious homemade weapon known as a garrote. She was hit on the head with enormous force, and there was evidence of sexual abuse. I knelt next to her and I leaned down to her face. And Jean leaned down opposite me. In her 1999 interview, Detective Arndt seemed to suggest to Elizabeth Vargas that in that moment, she was afraid of John Ramsey. And we had a nonverbal exchange that I will never forget. And he asked if she was dead. And I said, yes, she's dead. And as we looked at each other, I remember, and I wore a shoulder holster, tucking my gun right next to me and consciously counting, I've got 18 bullets. Why did you do that? Because I didn't know if we'd all be alive when people showed up. When Patsy Ramsey saw her daughter's body, she collapsed. I knelt down over her and just laid my body on her body and my cheek against her cheek, and it was cold. And I just kept saying, no, no, you know, ask God. Ask God to raise her. The kidnapping had just turned into a murder. Speculation about possible suspects begins immediately, and no one can be ruled out. I know who killed Champagnet. There's no doubt in my mind who killed Champagnet. And the grand juror, who thinks he knows too. December 26th. Earlier that day, Jean Benet's body was found, and the street outside was quiet. They brought Jean Benet's body out past the candy canes that were decorating the front of the house, and there were only like two reporters outside to capture that. And then the storm happened. Jean Benet Ramsey, the little girl in Colorado, was murdered. Beauty queen Jean Benet. Jean Benet's murder has frightened residents of Boulder. This case had everything. It had a beautiful little girl murdered, found in her home, her parents as suspects, videotape of her in beauty pageants. It touched every parent's heart. Um, this was a child who was put to bed by her parents and never woke up. I mean, that's every parent's nightmare. Hundreds of reporters descended on the small city of Boulder, including Craig Lewis of the supermarket tabloid The Globe. His marching orders were clear. When the beauty pageant pictures came out and they put John Bonet on the cover of the magazine, they sold an extra half a million copies a week. They said, we want a story a week, every week. We don't care what the story is. We just want to put John Bonet's picture on the cover. 
Those pageant videos raised eyebrows, but for some, so did the Ramseys' behavior. Carol McKinley is a veteran Colorado reporter. John Ramsey got on the phone right after his daughter's body was found to his pilot to get him out of town. I mean, JonBenet's body's lying under the Christmas tree. It was reported that shortly after you found your daughter's body that you called the pilot of your plane to arrange a flight to Atlanta. Is that true? I did. Police took the house over. We had nowhere to go. We wanted to go home. They didn't want to talk to the police. They lawyered up right away. The Ramseys agreed to give handwriting, hair, and blood samples. Still, they refused formal interviews with the police. At this point, they haven't interviewed the mother or father. Um, not surprisingly, they're still very grief-stricken. Um, They've not been in any kind of condition to be interviewed. There was no evidence of a break-in. There was no jimmying on the front door. There was no back door crashed in. There were four people in that house, and one died overnight. So everyone inside was a suspect. I think the primary reason the focus so quickly turned to the Ramses was, you have that ransom note. Who would write a three-page rambling ransom note other than someone trying to cover their tracks who was in the house? When you realized that you two were the prime suspects, what did you think? What did you feel? What did you say? Well, we were, we were outraged. We were, we were shocked. How could they think that? We were a normal family. You just can't believe it. I mean, you, we're, we're suffering from having lost our child. And then for someone to accuse you, it's just, you can't believe that that would happen. The book says the parents always did it. And that became the conclusion. The tragedy of the police investigation was that it ended on December 26th. Their 15-room mansion was now a crime scene. And what investigators soon learned was that some items used by the killer belonged to Patsy Ramsey. The ransom note and a second draft note, police say written on her notepad. The paintbrush used as part of the garage came from Patsy's art supplies. There were even fibers from the black and red check blazer she wore that night stuck to the duct tape covering Jean Benet's mouth. It was a red jacket all over the place downstairs, including on the underside of the duct tape. And that was very, very important. But there are problems because Patsy lived in that house. Would those fibers have been there anyway? Three days after Jean Benet died, the Ramseys held a memorial service for their daughter. She was buried in Atlanta beside her half-sister Beth, John's daughter by his first wife. But 24 hours later, they surprised everyone, breaking their silence on television. We wanted to talk now. They held everybody off with layers of lawyers and friends, and uh, then the next thing the police knew, they were on CNN. If anyone knows anything, please, please help us. And as a mother, my heart went out to this couple, but my journalistic brain said to me, this isn't right. They should be talking to the police, not the public via cable television network. John Ramsey says it's an interview he now regrets doing. Five days after the murder, you did an interview on CNN. Why did you do that? We did it uh, reluctantly and at the insistence of some friends who could see that we were being painted as, as guilty. Back in Boulder, the tips were pouring in. At the time of Jean Benet's murder, there were reportedly 38 registered sex offenders living within two miles of the family's home. Dozens of suspects, from family friends to the Ramsey's housekeeper, were checked out and eliminated. 
Even Jean Benet's nine-year-old brother, Burke, was questioned by a child psychologist. The video shown for the first time this year on Dr. Phil. Well, what do you think happened to your sister? Phil? <laughs> <laughs> I want to say something to the person or persons that took this baby from us. The list of suspects narrows. Soon there will be no one on the list but you. But the months passed with no arrest, and the police had not yet asked the Ramseys all the questions they wanted. The couple's lawyers set conditions. The Ramsey's attorneys wanted all the questions. They said they wouldn't go in for an interview with the police because they didn't know what the police were going to ask. As the standoff continued, speculation about their motives grew ever more lurid. Was John Ramsey a pedophile? Did Patsy murder her own daughter? The tabloids were having a field day, even speculating about a motive. Let me give the motive that is ascribed to you. Um, he went downstairs, maybe she came down, she said, Mommy, I wet my bed. You said, again, John Benet, and you either pushed her or you hit her. Are you exhausted? You were furious. You did it. You have a child. Would you get up in the middle of the night and slaughter your child? We're parents. We love our children. These are the two major motives. Either you sexually molested her or you snapped because primarily Let she me tell you something. Way. I'm a cancer survivor of stage four cancer. John has lost a child in an automobile accident. That completely changes your outlook. When you are standing on the brink of death with a terminal illness, your priorities suddenly line up in a row, and you know exactly what the important things are in life. And bedwetting is totally insignificant. Did either of you for a moment suspect each other? No. Not for Absolutely not minute. for a microsecond. The Ramseys insisted that an intruder had broken into their house. Does it sound possible that a killer would sit for hours and hours in your house? Uh, that sure. house was so rambling. There were so many hiding places. He could be hidden for a week and we wouldn't find him. Welcome to my scientifically informed insider look at mental health topics. If you find this video to be interesting or helpful, please like it and subscribe to my channel. This is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can analyze the mental health and personality factors that may be at work in the John Benet Ramsey case. This 1996 murder case became popular because of the odd circumstances surrounding the death of a six-year-old beauty pageant participant, John Benet Ramsey, including a two-and-a-half-page handwritten ransom note. Just a reminder, I'm not diagnosing anybody in this video, only speculating about what could be happening in a situation like this. First, I'll take a look at the crime, and then I'll examine the mental health and personality factors, including looking at the evidence that points toward the guilt and innocence of different people that may be involved in this murder. So starting with the crime, this takes us to December 26, 1996, in Boulder, Colorado. Patricia Ramsey, also known as Patsy, calls 911 at 5.52 a.m. to report that she has found a ransom note and her daughter, JonBenet Ramsey, is missing. Patricia also called family and friends, informing them that JonBenet Ramsey was missing 
The ransom note specifically cautioned against contacting anyone. The police arrived three minutes after the 911 call. The three people in the home were Patsy, her husband John, and their nine-year-old son, Burke. The ransom note was written to John Ramsey, and it specified that the kidnappers would be calling between 8 and 10 a.m. in pursuit of their demand, $118,000. That call never came. The police cordoned off John Benet Ramsey's bedroom, but they did not search the house. It wasn't until over seven hours later that the police would ask John Ramsey and one of his neighbors that came over to search the house and look for anything that was out of place. John Ramsey went directly to the basement and came up from the basement carrying John Benet, saying that he found her behind a latched door going to a room that was rarely used. John Benet's body was covered with a white blanket. There was a cord wrapped around her wrists and her neck, and it appeared that she had been strangled with a garrote. There was duct tape over her mouth, which John removed before coming up the steps. Then he covered her body with a throw blanket. John Ramsey had been instructed prior to this to leave everything where it was, right, not to disturb anything. At this point, the crime scene was contaminated. Now moving to January 1997, we see at this point it was determined that JonBenet died from a skull fracture and strangulation. In April of 97, we see the police interview John and Patsy. In December of 1997, the police indicate that they are highly suspicious of the couple. January 1998, the couple refuses to be interviewed by the police a second time. So we see kind of a foolish mistake here by the police. They let their suspicions about the couple be known. So it kind of makes sense that the couple would not want to cooperate from this point on. The police looked at a number of suspects, not only the people in the home, but they also looked at neighbors and other people they thought may have committed similar crimes. Moving to October 1999, we see that the district attorney announces that there will be no indictments in this case. This takes us all the way to June 2006. Patsy dies of ovarian cancer. In August 2006, a former school teacher named John Mark Carr is arrested after confessing to the crime. He was eventually cleared of any wrongdoing, so it appears like he was just looking for fame. 2008, we see John, Patsy, and Burke are exonerated based on the results of testing for touch DNA. Many people have disagreed with this exoneration. October 2010, the police conduct a new round of interviews. Then in January 2013, we see a report indicating that a 1999 grand jury had voted to indict John and Patsy in connection with the death of John Bonet. But the DA believed that there was not enough evidence and they would not sign the indictment. As of the time I'm making this video, this case is still unsolved. So now moving to this question, who is responsible, and looking at the mental health and personality factors. So I don't know who did this. This is really just all speculation. Like I always say, I'm just speculating about a situation like this. I'll take a look at the evidence that points toward the idea that somebody in the house committed the crime, and then I'll look at the evidence that points against that. So that would point toward an intruder. So pointing toward the people in the house, evidence of a break-in was restricted to just one area. There's a broken window in the basement. There's a hard suitcase that was pushed flush against that same wall. And there's a scuff mark on that wall. In the opening, there was an undisturbed spider web. Although John said that he broke that window months before, after he locked himself out of the house. Right, so... So he saying, was creeping in the house the through the window all the time the getting crime. his daughter, we also but this see this time he got carried away. Note. 
It came from one of Patsy's notes. And he tried to cover this shit up and say, well, you know what? Somebody else did this. The Patsy owned. We see the $118,000 Patsy woke up while he was in the shower the trying to calm down. As a bonus. There also and he found the notes. To he had to come out the shower playing like he was surprised and, and shocked and in the house. face so wet and dripping like so she can't tell his like expressions. And then they use those references. I bet you believe This is really one of the most fascinating pieces of evidence and one of the few items in this case that really she gives us any type of look had into it, possible head already. And he factors. was supposed to be putting her to bed. Now it's possible this was a legitimate ransom note. Or birds hit her in the head. There are several important aspects of this note. I'm going to go through That's many of these why. in detail. Patsy so first said here, they. Why, why did they do somebody this? write a note this long as they're in the commission of a crime? Because it came from Patsy's notepad. It's theorized that whoever wrote it did not write it in advance. If there really was a kidnapper, they certainly would have brought the note with them. The timing doesn't make sense either with this note. We're to believe that the alleged kidnapper wrote the note prior to attempting the crime. We know that John Bonet was eventually killed. The intruder certainly didn't write the letter afterward. That wouldn't have made any sense. The fact that it was handwritten in the moment also makes me wonder how that person stayed so calm. Like their hands should have been shaking. Of course, this would be the case whether this was a family member or an intruder. Whoever wrote the note would have had to stay calm long enough to complete it. If the motive really was to kidnap John Bonet, why did the kidnapper leave the body behind? That way, the Ramses wouldn't have known if John Bonet was dead or not. Therefore, they would have still paid the ransom. Why was the note addressed to Mr. Ramsey? This is a little formal for a ransom note. We see they reference a small foreign faction. I found this to be peculiar. Why would they use the word small? Someone representing a small foreign faction would not want to draw attention to the fact that it was not large. It's just not the way one refers to a small foreign faction. It's like whoever wrote this really didn't understand small foreign factions at all. How did the writer know about John Ramsey's bonus? Right, Only a few people would have had this information. There's a lot of unnecessary language in the letter. It has kind of an artistic feel to it. For example, it says, we have your daughter in our possession. Kind of legal sounding. It also says, if we monitor you getting the money early. Monitor? Seems like a strange choice of words. The ransom note talks about deviating from instructions. It warns that you will be denied her remains for proper burial. For most people contemplating paying a ransom, would this be a deal breaker? Would they think to themselves, I would really like her back, but I don't want to spend the money. And then they read the note a little further, and they see the part about not getting the body back, and they say, oh, that does it. I'm convinced. Let's pay the ransom. I think if somebody's engaging in a kidnapping, they would know that the victim's safe return is the key item that they are selling. There's no need to try to create an additional incentive for somebody to follow the instructions. They're already properly incentivized. The note also seems to give a lot of advice. Make sure you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. As I was reading this, I was expecting the writers to say, don't forget to grab your comfortable shoes, brush your teeth before you leave the house, and please, don't forget your seatbelt. The letter demonstrates an unusual degree of concern about for the details the of the Ramsey's experience John. as they try to deliver the ransom. Like, paying the ransom really isn't good enough. They want the Ramseys to have a good customer experience. They want them to be satisfied with everything that happened. Like, we would expect that after the victim was returned, there's a customer survey that comes along with it, right? Rate 1 to 5, 
how did you like this kidnapping? It's just not something that a kidnapper would do. They're not concerned with the feelings of any of the victims. The entire letter is just disconnected from the brutality of kidnapping and, of course, disconnected from the brutality of the murder that actually occurred. It demonstrates far too much sensitivity for the Ramsey's point of view. I think this ransom note is one of the best indications pointing toward the involvement of the Ramseys. I know there have been all these handwriting experts that say that Patsy didn't write the letter, but it really seems unlikely that anyone else did write the letter. I have a real difficulty believing the intruder would have written this. Now, of course, it's possible that John wrote it, but again, I think Patsy would be the more obvious suspect in this case. So that covers the ransom notes, now moving along with the evidence. We see Patsy's paintbrush was used as the murder weapon, right? So we have the paper written in the note, potentially the Sharpie used to write the note, and now the paintbrush used as a garrote. A flashlight or a baseball bat may have been the murder weapon. We see that the couple denies owning a flashlight that was found on the scene. This seems unusual, like they're trying to keep a distance from anything that could implicate them, even something that would not have prompted suspicion. So many people own a flashlight. Again, it's like they're pushing every possible connection away. There's this inaudible portion of Patsy's 911 call. It does make it seem like something's being covered up, right? There's just parts where you can't hear it, and it makes people wonder what was being discussed. If that was many the real video, what was I mean, uh, in that portion. John and Patsy called for family the 911 call. After what I heard, I heard no Burke in the background, and I heard Daddy talking shit. John Ramsey failed to follow the police instructions and did in fact contaminate the crime scene. We see the two hours from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. passed, and there was no call from the kidnapper. When that time passed, neither John nor Patsy said anything, like they didn't expect there to be a call in the first place. Now, there's been a lot of talk about Burke's interview on Phil McGraw. People have suggested because he was smiling during that interview, he must Man, have had something to do ass with the crime. Look like he but the smiling part of anxiety. It's an uncomfortable topic. All those cameras are pointed at him. Bullshit. That interview really could be scary, right? So Bullshit. I don't really think that interview points toward Bullshit. for Burke. Yes, it now does. Now pointing against guilt for the people in the house. We see an it absence points towards of his punk ass and not caring and, and not giving a fuck what happened to his little Burke. sister. They had no reason to commit the crime. We see this footprint found outside Shit the house. Shit in her bed. There's a lot of disagreement about that. Shit on the wall. I guess technically Shit on her candy box. Intruder, but the fuck is wrong with you, you weirdo? A few windows in the house were open just a little. It was Christmas time, and they were running electrical cords outside for the lights. So there is technically an alternative here other than that broken window in the basement. Someone could have approached one of those windows that were cracked open. Open to the rest Why of the Why y'all act like the motherfucker can't just come in the fucking and door? Left, and then closed it Everybody had out. a key, number one. It's number two, really likely, but if he did come in the possible. window, he'd still go out we the door. Two marks that were found and if he came in to the party two days gun. ahead of time, no stayed in the motherfucking house while you guys were all getting ready for Christmas, and he didn't need to come through no goddamn window. And then finally, looking at the evidence against guilt for the Ramseys, we see that DNA was found on JonBenet's body, and that DNA like did not said, to anybody in the house. He thinks and of course, this the person was, the was already in the house. Okay, but they were in the house for two days. So now weighing the evidence, what are my thoughts in this case? 
Well, I have selected five possible explanations to review. I will start with the most unlikely explanation for the crime but and then move to the I most will likely. Say it's important to keep in mind that I'm not sure they about could have had on gloves, my opinion, but including the one that I think has the highest probability of being true. So starting with the least likely even explanation, gloves, even Mark, Burke, again, somewhere. nine years old at the time, accidentally strikes John Bonet but with on some the sort of blunt object. How do you explain that Patty and Bert are the only fingerprints on the, the bowl in the glass? I have several problems with this theory. There are very few nine-year-olds that would commit murder. If Burke did do it, it would be surprising that he could have tolerated the police interrogations and not revealed anything to implicate himself. Another problem here is that at nine years old, he wouldn't have been charged as an adult. And nobody would have believed that this was intentional homicide, so there would be no reason to cover it up. Moving to the next explanation, this is the intruder theory. This explanation just doesn't make a lot of sense. Somebody breaks into the house, they spend 10 to 15 minutes writing a note, they leave no fingerprints on it, only Patsy's fingerprints were found on the note. Then that note took over anyway. 45 minutes. The they had practice yeah. sessions and they had to no think ransom. about what to say. At the same time, and they were trying were to write it weird. Enough to commit this crime, it does stand to reason that their behavior across multiple domains would be disorganized as well. So that kind of lends some credibility to this theory. Moving to the next explanation. John and Patsy conspired to commit premeditated murder. Okay, that's so the just problem dumb. here is really the absence of a motive. Although it does explain how they were able to keep their story straight and why they retained counsel early. Now I think it was a good idea in their position. John and Patsy knew what happened. But most people would That's do why that. they obtained an attorney. The next they didn't plan to kill the man the crime girl, you in the heat of the moment. They planned to rape her, molest her, chastise her, make her into a robot. What, what would have caused Patsy to get Beauty so pageant queen. stressed or angry that she would have and committed Burke murder? Was using we see this theory that she was frustrated with bedwetting, but it's really not a strong motive. Then the last no. explanation would be that John committed the crime in the heat of the moment and Patsy covered for him. The only reason I put this one as slightly more probable than the last one was because John appeared to be eager to contaminate the crime scene. If Patsy had committed the murder, I would think that she would be the one who would want to contaminate the scene with her You mean like DNA, when she laid all over John Bonet and, whatever and else cried all person. over her and prayed and so, all over her this theory really has and the the circle of people after he found her? Theory. You mean that? So putting it all together, like so many unsolved crimes, this case starts with an unlikely event. The fact that John Bonet was murdered at all is unusual. So every explanation is going to seem unlikely as well. Although there has to be some explanation somewhere for this crime. Just looking at the statistics, an explanation involving John and or Patsy in some way would be the most likely. They had access, Patsy's property was used in the commission of the crime, and the person who wrote the note knew about John's bonus. I certainly believe that there is reasonable doubt in this case. So if the two had been charged with murder, then I think they would have been not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But when it comes down to actual innocence or guilt, I think guilt appears more probable than innocence in this case. There's just this sense that they knew more than they were revealing. I know whenever I talk about controversial cases, there will be a variety of opinions. Please put any opinions and thoughts in the comments section. They always generate an interesting dialogue. As always, I hope you found my analysis of this topic to be interesting. Thanks for watching. Thank you for your comments.
Holloway disappeared on Aruba. She was never found, and no one was ever prosecuted in the case, not even the main suspect, Johan van der Sloot. Tonight, we're showing new suspects and fresh evidence based on this book, The Holloway Files, which just came out and was written by two renowned crime reporters. The authors obtained the complete police files and were granted unprecedented access inside the Holloway case. They wrote one of the most extraordinary stories about the vanishing of Natalie Holloway ever written. This documentary shows their most important new findings. Natalie Holloway partying on her, looks like probably her last night alive. Dancing in a nightclub in Little Ruba. Having a friend. It's party time again on Aruba. American tourists enjoying themselves like nothing ever happened. Eight years into the disappearance of Alabama teen Natalie Holloway. Well, that's eight years later. Aruba is excellent, actually. Um, we, we had a, a pretty hard dip in 2005, 2006, and then slowly each year it's continued to rise again. Julia Renfro is an insider born in the USA. She's been living on Aruba for more than 20 years. As the editor-in-chief of the local newspaper, she's been following the case of Natalie very closely. Natalie Holloway was here on Aruba on a school class trip where she had just graduated from high school and all of her friends were down and they were just having a good time. On the 29th of May, they went to the casino at the Holiday Inn where they were staying. They were an all-inclusive package which also included alcohol and all they could eat. And after a while, they had heard that the place to go was Carlos and Charlie's, where it's a lot of fun. Prior to going to Carlos and Charlie's, they had met Joran van der Sloot in the casino, at the casino table, and had invited him to come along. Joran werd min of meer uitgenodigd om daar naartoe te komen en is daar s'avonds ook naartoe gegaan. Samen met twee andere jongens, de broertjes Kalpo, hebben daar vertoefd tot de sluitingstijd. En daarna zijn ze een eindje gaan rijden, waarbij Natalie Holloway... Zichzelf uitnodigde en mee is gaan rijden. She got in the car, according to witnesses. She said, woohoo, Aruba, got in the car and they drove off. And this is where they came, right to this exact spot where we're sitting right now. The question is, did Johan indeed leave Natalie on the beach? The police found evidence implying other locations and even other suspects. In this documentary, we'll present four scenarios investigated by the police of what may have happened on the night that Natalie disappeared. twice in the Natalie Holloway case. This second arrest came after a case review by Dutch police. It was never made public why Johan was taken into custody again. But in the police files, we find the answers. First, there were three fishermen on the beach on the exact same spot that Johan said he left Natalie. And the fishermen did not see the two there that night, they told police.
When we started Carvana, they told us that selling cars 100% online wouldn't work. But so, we went to work. Building an experience that lets you shop over 17,000 cars from home. About that, so. Creating a coast-to-coast -coast network to deliver your car as soon as tomorrow. Recruiting an army. If you want to know the rest of the uh, Natalie Holloway story, check my podcast. I will be doing an in-depth uh, investigation on Natalie Holloway, John Bonet Ramsey, Marilyn Monroe, Black Dahlia, and some of the uh, Green River murders of the young black children who have never been um, justified. And 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 let me say the Green River murders or the uh, uh, what is that that get that black guy with the glasses? I I forget his name right now, but. Uh, <clears throat> they have him for killing all those kids in Atlanta. Oh, the Atlanta murders. But you know what? I'm going to go on record and say that the KKK had a lot to do with those murders. So, we'll find out the truth in the end. And uh, in case one of you murderers do happen to hear, one of you rapists child molesting motherfuckers happen to hear this podcast I want you to know that you know God's eyes are watching you period famous fashion designer in the world he made very knowing sexy clothes and all the movie stars wanted to be in them when I tried on this dress designed by Johnny Versace it was the pinnacle of my career. But his success also attracts jealousy and envy. Envy so deep that in 24 hours, Versace will be dead. Hunted down by a ruthless killer and shot in cold blood. I just kept yelling at him, stop, stop, stop. And that's when he was pointing the gun at me. It's impossible to forget the images of his blood. This is the last 24 hours in the life of Gianni Versace. South Beach, Miami, July 14th, 1997. It's 7.45 a.m. and Gianni Versace is enjoying the start of a beautiful day in paradise. It will be his last. In 24 hours, he'll be dead. Versace has come here to Casa Casarina, his multi-million dollar mansion getaway, to kick back and relax in the Florida sun. He's just arrived from New York, where he's negotiated the biggest deal of his life. He's also just launched his latest fall collection at a glitzy event in Paris. With him is Antonio D'Amico, 
Versace's close companion for the last 14 years. Usually after the fashion show in Paris, we always take a week, 10 days of a holiday just to relax. Usually we get up early in the morning because, you know, Johnny was a workaholic, so couldn't stay without work, even if it was on vacation. Versace is recovering from a recent illness. He's placed himself on a diet of mostly fruit and juice, but a healthy diet will not prolong his life. At 8 a.m., the couple takes their usual stroll down Ocean Drive. Although he's normally trailed by bodyguards at runway shows, Versace moves freely here in South Beach. He sees no reason for protection. It was about bodyguards. I think it was just being free and enjoying life. You know, enjoying everything that was South Beach. For Versace and D'Amico, South Beach is the perfect place to get away and unwind. Here, in this relaxed, hip, gay-friendly area, the couple can simply be themselves. In 23 hours, that feeling of safety will prove to be a dangerous delusion. But for now, as the morning rolls on, the carefree couple continues to enjoy the perks of an opulent and envied lifestyle. All fueled by Versace's meteoric rise to fame in the 1980s. Gianni Versace reached the apex of the fashion world by turning haute couture on its ear. He brought flashy entertainment to the runways of the world. He sold raunchy sex, wrapped in $30,000 creations. And he created the supermodel. When I tried on this dress, designed by Johnny Versace, I felt that at that moment, it was the pinnacle of my career. Johnny Versace gave me the dress and said, you will be my favorite model. I worked for Johnny Versace for the next 10 years straight. His couture shows in Paris were always held at the Ritz. And everyone would be sitting there in their sunglasses, and there would be the runway. And the supermodels would come down the staircase wearing nothing but evening dresses. It was always gorgeous, form-fitting, things made often of metal. He liked chain metal. Versace made his mark by cleverly fusing design principles of high art with those of trashy street culture. Instinctively, he understood exactly what women wanted. And he also understood the power of publicity. With wonderful choreography, with the most beautiful clothes, with an audience filled with the most important editors, rock stars, actors, and he would very cleverly place the magazine editors between movie stars so that the movie stars felt like they had day jobs and the magazine editors felt like stars. Versace was a walking contradiction. 
He was a poor boy from southern Italy, yet he created the new Italian aristocracy. He came from a macho Italian culture, yet he was gay. He was drawn to men, yet he celebrated the female body. He threw wild parties, but rarely drank alcohol and never took drugs. Gianni Versace built his empire, the House of Versace, and he basked in the attention. But in 23 hours, he will receive his most sensational headline yet. And this one will be his last. July 14th, 1997. It's 9am, and Gianni Versace has just 23 hours left to live. Fresh from unveiling his latest fall collection in Paris and overseeing a multi-million dollar stock deal in New York, Versace and his partner, Antonio D'Amico, have come to relax in their palatial Miami mansion. After a healthy breakfast, Versace and D'Amico continue their stroll down South Beach. As usual, they drop in at the News Cafe, a popular spot for morning coffee and for reading the latest international magazines. Even on holiday, Gianni Versace can't help but catch up on the latest news from the fashion world. Oh, he loved Miami. He really loved Miami very much. He would walk, you know, go and buy his magazines and feel very relaxed because he, this was his daily walk. He loved, he loved magazines. He was a celebrity and he didn't bring any attention to himself. He was very low key and uh, came in and sometimes had breakfast, sometimes had a cup of coffee, met some people. But as he continues to browse the magazine racks, Versace is completely unaware that ever since arriving from New York, he's been watched by an envious admirer. A desperate man who's left a trail of bodies across the country. Versace's much-envied success had its beginnings a world away, in a small dressmaker's shop in southern Italy. Gianni Versace came into the world on December 2nd, 1946, in Reggio di Calabria, on the toe of Italy's boot. Only three years earlier, World War II soldiers had marched through the streets of his hometown, leaving behind the scars of battle. In this hard-scrabble world, Versace's enterprising mother made dresses for the local gentry. Young Gianni lived and played on the design floor. Gianni Versace had great admiration for the female form. His mother was a seamstress, so he grew up sitting, watching his mother always sewing and making outfits. Johnny's mother gave Johnny her legacy as being a, a pattern maker. 
so the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Johnny created his first dress at the ripe old age of nine. A blue one-shouldered evening gown. A design that even the young daydreaming Versace could never imagine would be worn 40 years later by a princess. Briefly forsaking a career in fashion, however, he entered university to study architecture. But he was considered an oddball, and he didn't stay long. One of his few friends at that time was Angelo Bonabo. Versace at that time was not openly gay. But he had a sort of slightly high-pitched voice. But he didn't display feminine or gay behavior. Young Versace found it impossible to ignore his sexual orientation. This growing tension nurtured his driving need to prove himself and to escape his humble beginnings. And Johnny, a young boy from Calabria, was only following his destiny just until he reached Milan or Rome to sell his clothes because there was no unsophisticated quality about this man whatsoever. He was born to be great. But Gianni Versace's greatness would also lead to jealousy from those who would covet his success. On the carefree streets of South Beach, he's being followed by a desperate man. Andrew Kinnanen, a gay man from San Diego who met Versace seven years before and never forgot. I first met Andrew while I was working at a restaurant in San Diego, California, and he was a regular patron. He wanted to be liked. He wanted to be popular. He was uh, a good time Charlie for sure. Andrew Kunanen was a very bright young man and the one thing that Versace had was all the fame and glory that Andrew didn't have, the riches, the recognition, and he got very angry and very bitter. Because of Kunanen's obsession, Versace has only 22 hours left to live. 25 years earlier in 1972, Gianni Versace was determined to show the world what he'd learned in his mother's dress shop. He packed his bags and headed north to Italy's fashion mecca, Milan. Young Versace put in long hours. He designed for a variety of houses. He quickly became the precocious young designer to watch. young, eager to please, incredibly excited about what he was doing and what was happening with his life. He had a sunny disposition and he was generous. And the older designers, the more established, middle-aged, northern Italian, Milanese types, weren't crazy about him. He came from Calabria, his mother was a dressmaker. An outsider in Milan, Versace took risks. He had nothing to lose and everything to prove. He had the ability to thread and weave leather and lace and to make brilliant clothes. He just had the ability to make a woman feel luscious 
And he knew that that was what women wanted. Gianni Versace didn't just know what women wanted. He arrived in Milan at precisely the right time. The post-war dreariness was over and people had money to spend. Milan is a business city, so women in Milano were wearing a blazer, pants. So they were struggling to get out and to look sexy, to go out at night and have fun and become feminine again. Somehow, the young Versace had all the right instincts. Italian women loved his style. One employer gave him a bonus of a new Volkswagen convertible. He and the car were seen everywhere, an image that typifies La Dolce Vita, the liberating sweet life of post-war northern Italy. On the surface, Versace came across like a young socialite, a well-cultivated image. In reality, he was a full-fledged workaholic, working often all night, constantly sketching new ideas. He was a man driven all his life by a need to succeed. Well, Gianni had what, what we say in Italian, una marcia in più, which means one extra gear. <laughs> he was really something. He was very ambitious, but in the right way. He wanted to succeed. When Versace needed to let off steam, he would do so in the many gay bars in Milan. For the first time in his life, Versace had found a place where he could truly be himself. In his new home, he knew exactly how to get noticed. But 25 years later, in South Beach, Florida, Versace's ability to draw attention to himself would bring him face to face with a killer. South Beach, Florida, July 14th, 1997. After spending the morning strolling by the beach, superstar designer Gianni Versace and his partner Antonio D'Amico return to their mansion. Versace has no idea that a man named Andrew Kinnanen has traveled more than 2,000 miles to South Beach to meet him one more time. In 18 hours, Versace will be dead. Almost 20 years before, in the cutthroat business of fashion, Versace was busy surrounding himself with those he could most trust, his own family. After 10 years as a gun for hire, Versace launched his own label with the help of his baby sister Donatella and his older brother Santo. Santo held a commerce degree and was well versed in the tangled world of Italian finance. Gianni was really like, you know, the, the head of everything. It was Gianni's decision. He decided what to do, always. The Versace label was the new kid on the block. With bold designs, it captured the imagination of the public 
and cashed in on rave reviews. Versace knew how to make a big splash. He pursued the high clergy of international fashion, the likes of Elle magazine and Vogue. He most definitely knew the value of star power. He also was one of the first designers to realize that it's better to show your clothes to movie stars who are never going to buy them than to show them to rich ladies who might. His stellar client list included Madonna, Princess Diana, and Elton John. I remember a party after one of Versace's shows in Milan where I found myself sitting next to Elton John. You know, you'd look up and you'd see all these headliners, and it worked. Johnny was the star. Celebrities equate power, money, style, and just being on the it scene, and that was what Johnny Versace was all about. And it was that need to be part of the scene that led Versace to South Beach, Miami, where the rich and famous were snapping up waterfront real estate. While visiting in 1991, he fell in love with its celebrated strip of Art Deco hotels. His attraction to South Beach might also have been about sex. South Beach was really one of the great sexual destinations for gays, and it was a it was an anything goes, wonderful hot club scene. I think that's what attracted Versace. The scene was raw and driven by an endless stream of drugs. There's a lot of partying. There's a lot of after-hours things going on. The drugs were there. Sex, yeah, sure. When you when you when you include all of that, sex is always there. Easy. Well, why would a homosexual man want to be in a gay capital center? Probably he's just a horny dog at heart. Adding to his growing list of international properties, Versace bought the rundown mansion Casa Casarina and transformed it into an ornate Renaissance Italian palace. There were people who had gone into the Versace mansion who said it was a gay wet dream or something like if the Sultan of Brunei had met Louis XIV. <laughs> These guys, they design dresses, make a lot of money, they want to make an amazing house and... It's all about design. Yeah. It seemed that everything Gianni touched turned to gold. But it was this very glitter that would attract his killer. In 1982, however, Versace was too busy to worry about anything else but work. More successful than ever, he was asked to design the costumes for Milan's famed opera house. La Scala. For Versace, who loved opera, it was a dream come true. That was something unusual too. As a fashion designer, I don't think it had been done at the Scala before that. He loved opera. Versace's leap from the catwalk to the stage took him to San Francisco, where he met the man who would eventually shoot him dead. Very much at home in the gay capital of America, Versace took full advantage of the party scene. 
Also on hand was Andrew Cunanan, a small-time con man drawn by the glamour and the glitz. In the fall of 1990, Versace was uh, asked to design the costumes for an opera, Capriccio, in San Francisco. And the gay community was all at Twitter that Versace would be in their midst. And they had several parties for him before the opera opening. At one of these parties at a gay disco, Andrew was invited. And there are at least three eyewitnesses I spoke to who saw Andrew and Versace interact at that party. Evidently, there was uh, a brief conversation, an exchange of pleasantries, little more. Andrew came back to San Diego high as a kite on his weekend with Johnny Versace, talking about all of the things they did together, all of the, all of the lavish treatment he received, bestowed upon him by none other than fashion designer great Johnny Versace. To Versace... The meeting was largely insignificant. But to Andrew Cunanan, the brief encounter took on mythic proportions. There's also the hideous fascination that fashion has on people. With the creation of this idea of an elite came, of course, the exclusion of people who weren't in it. And therefore, people who might have touched it marginally are always going to be at once more involved and more jealous. And jealousy was the drive that would end Versace's life. What Cunanan didn't tell his friends was that later that night at another bar, he tried to meet up with Versace again. But this time, because of Versace's large entourage, Cunanan was stonewalled. This move was interpreted as an outright snub. Seven years later, still carrying a grudge, Andrew Cunanan would meet Versace again, this time in South Beach. And this time, he would be carrying a gun. July 14th, 1997, four in the afternoon. Johnny Versace has only 16 hours left to live. And as the lazy day slowly winds down on South Beach, the famous designer is busy talking with his office in Milan. Even here, at his holiday getaway, Versace finds it impossible to stop working. Lazaro Quintana, his neighbor and good friend, drops by for a visit. over to the house to, to go to the movies. We had made plans to go to the movies that night. And um, we chose to see the movie Contact. But Jodie Foster was a very good movie. As they head to the theater, Andrew Cunanan, the man who felt he was snubbed by Versace seven years earlier, lurks in the shadows, obsessed with revenge. But to his former friends in California, Cunanan was a much different man. He was uh, a buoyant, overzealous, party individual who really enjoyed the spotlight. Always had a kind word and a laugh, a joke or two. Uh, really a, a good-natured a good guy. 
Andrew Cunanan was half Filipino, half Sicilian, and he knew he was gay from a very young age. And he was constantly uh, showing off, and he became a hustler, I also think, at a very young age. And it, he never really wanted to work for a living. Andrew Cunanan's exotic Eurasian good looks played well to his lifestyle. Shamed by his modest background, he lied about just about everything. He posed as Andy De Silva, a rich boy with a private income. Cunanan was a hustler who conned even his closest friends. In fact, uh, we only knew him as Andrew De Silva, but not until after the killings did we hear the name Cunanan attached with our friend from the neighborhood. And to the best of his ability, he wanted to portray somebody that, that participated in the luxury life. Cunanan was bright, personable, and a consummate liar. And oddly, he was obsessed with anything to do with Gianni Versace. I really do think that, in a way, being the narcissist that he was, Andrew probably thought he was just as capable as Versace to get that rich or that famous. And I think he was a total snob and completely looked down on the vulgarity of Versace. He loved Vanity Fair, Vogue, Bazaar, uh, GQ. He also would, would talk about the runway shows, the Fashion Week in New York or over in Paris. Although to all the world he looked like a preppy college boy, Andrew Cunanan was more at home in a world of cheap sex and hard drugs. Truth be told, uh, Andrew was involved in several underground money-making operations, running drugs, uh, shipping things out to the Midwest, uh, stolen goods. He also arranged parties for older, uh, closeted businessmen. He was also paid as a male prostitute and escort. It's 8 p.m., and no one can imagine that in only 12 hours, the world's most famous fashion designer will be gunned down by a cheap hustler on the streets of South Beach. Outside a cinema, Versace and his friends head back home. Then we went back to the house. We wanted to have a snack, so we went into the kitchen. We sat down, and I had a sandwich and cheese and whatnot. And um, right after that, Antonio and I made plans to play tennis the next morning, and I went home. It's a game they would never play. Three months earlier, Andrew Cunanan began his lethal downhill slide. He'd come to see himself as a tawdry hustler whose looks were quickly fading. He was also convinced that he was HIV positive. He thought he had nothing to lose. He was involved with prescription pills, marijuana. He was into S&M pornography, and his life became rougher and more coarse, and his values took a dive. Fueled by a steady diet of hard drugs, in the spring of 1997, Andrew Cunanan finally snapped. He set out on a murderous rampage that would end 
with Gianni Versace. July 14th, 1997, 11pm. With only nine hours left to live, Gianni Versace spends his last night dozing on the couch of his villa, Casa Casarina. He spent the evening out at the movies. The TV news reports all focus on Andrew Cunanan's murder spree. Three months earlier, on April 25th, Andrew Cunanan flew from San Diego to Minneapolis in a fit of jealousy. He believed that two of his old boyfriends, David Madsen and Jeff Trail, were having a live-in relationship. When they strongly denied it, Cunanan finally lost his grip on reality. In a rage, he grabbed a claw hammer from the kitchen drawer and beat Jeff Trail, a former U.S. Navy lieutenant, to death. Afraid for his life and a virtual prisoner, Madsen fled with Cunanan. There were two days that passed before the two of them left together and left Trail's body rolled up in a rug. And then they were on the road not that long before Matson was shot. While Cunanan was knee-deep in murder, Gianni Versace was in Paris unveiling his latest fall collection. The fashion press reported that he was experimenting with mandarin collars and the single shoulder pad. Soon after, he flew to New York to float the House of Versace on the New York Stock Exchange. This was a very important time in Versace's life because he was trying to take his company public. He was absolutely obsessed with the idea of being the very first Italian designer to be listed not only in the Milan Stock Exchange, but also the U.S. Stock Exchange. So he had just signed those papers. It was really a high point for him, a very high point. Meanwhile, Cunanan continued his murderous rampage. In Chicago, he robbed and killed Lee Miglin, a wealthy real estate developer, and took off in Miglin's car. In New Jersey, he shot a cemetery caretaker and stole his red pickup truck. Next, Cunanan set his sights on Florida and Gianni Versace. With four murders in 12 days, Cunanan was a full-fledged serial killer. He left behind a trail of clues. But while the police knew who he was, they could only guess where he'd strike next. There was a belief that the subject was possibly coming uh, to Florida. Uh, there was some information that he might be making it down to West Palm Beach. Halfway to South Beach, Cunanan attached a stolen license plate to the pickup. Andrew Cunanan, the two-bit hustler, had finally made a name for himself. But he wasn't done quite yet. 
he rushed down Interstate 95 into South Beach, where Versace and Kananan were destined to meet for the last time. Even after Andrew was named one of the 10 most wanted in the United States, the 3,000 flyers uh, were never distributed around the gay bars or any of the places where Andrew was frequenting while he was on the lam before he shot Versace. Nobody knew what he looked like because nobody had put up the flyers. And then two of the police detectives from Miami Beach found boxes on them in the back seat of, of the rookie FBI agent's car. Across town from the Versace mansion, Kananen checked into a low-rent hotel called the Normandy Plaza. The Normandy Plaza Hotel is sort of like on the boulevard of broken dreams. And uh, the first night Andrew stayed there, I think he had to pay $32 a night. If you paid by the week, it was $29. Almost tempting fate, Kananen pawned a gold coin stolen from one of his victims and brazenly filled out the papers with his own name giving his correct address at the Normandy Plaza Hotel and leaving a thumbprint. As required by Florida law, a copy was delivered to the police. But they didn't see anybody uh, reporting gold coins stolen, so it just went to another pile. The guy who was supposed to be in charge of it, the policeman, took several days off, so the, the thing just sat there. We had an antiquated uh, system, one that we did try to upgrade, and that would have provided the technology to let us know that we actually had uh, an Andrew Kananen here in town. The big chance to stop Kananen has probably been missed. Kananen sees no reason to lie low. He believes that the police would never venture far into the local gay scene. Tomorrow, he plans to kill Versace but tonight he's simply out on the town. The reason I think that he did so well hiding out by the beach is because South Beach, especially during that period, was uh, very transient. He certainly had a lot of hotels like Normandy Plaza. He wasn't trying to hide anything. He was in a gay uh, bar. And according to a young man I interviewed who was on the dance floor with him, he said, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a serial killer, ha, ha, ha. Andrew Kananen's main weapon was an uncanny ability to change his appearance. Master of disguise is the way we would describe him. He seemed like he was able to easily change his appearance. We actually compiled a, uh, a flyer that had all of these looks, and it wasn't easy to tell it was the same person. Versace and his friends have no idea that right in their neighborhood, a full-scale manhunt is underway. We didn't know anything about it. The residents didn't know. They, they surely could have posted. And I do blame the police department for not coming out and saying, you know, we have this, or post it, you know, bring it to the gay bars, gay clubs, or any club. On the eve of murdering Versace, the serial killer is still very much on the loose. Kunanen hits the South Beach clubs buoyed by a sense of purpose and destiny. An exhausted Gianni Versace dozes on his last night. 
He's not only at the end of a grueling schedule, but he's also recovering from a serious illness. In the mid-1990s, Versace was diagnosed with cancer of the inner ear. It's such a rare tumor that the inevitable whisper of AIDS raced through the fashion world. Versace had these strange cancers and he appeared very, very weak and he had come a couple of times to South Beach kind of to recuperate. But when he came back this time, he seemed to be uh, much better. People thought that he had AIDS. Uh, I, I know Johnny quite well and I, I think we've had, you know, close friendship there to know whether he was infected with, with the ACE virus and he wasn't. And I knew him. He didn't. Versace responded favorably to treatment, but by 1997, the empire was in greater danger from another threat. The following morning, July 15th, 1997. Gianni Versace, after a quiet night at home, rises early. He has just 90 minutes left to live. Antonio D'Amico, his partner, is still asleep, and Versace sets out on his morning stroll alone. Back at the mansion, neighbor Lazaro Quintana arrives to play tennis with Antonio, who isn't up yet. So I was over at the house around 7.30 the next morning, and I went into the yard. On the morning of July 15th, Andrew Kananen also rises early. But his morning routine begins with a fistful of bullets. As usual, Versace walks to the news cafe to pick up newspapers and magazines. That morning, I believe uh, 8 o'clock, maybe 8.15, uh, I saw him uh, walk into the store. He was in here for a few minutes, perused the magazines. Versace buys a copy of Business Week, The New Yorker, Vogue, Entertainment Weekly, and People magazine. A week's worth of reading, magazines he will never open. As he was leaving, he said, you know, good morning. I said, good morning. And he left to go um, home, I assume. In ten minutes, Gianni Versace will meet Kunanen for the second and final time in his life. Usually surrounded by an entourage, Versace is on his own as he walks slowly back towards Casa Casarina. from home, Kananen closes in. He got to the steps uh, of the mansion. Andrew Kunanen was across the street, and Andrew casually strolled and went right up to Versace and shot him.
At 8 a.m. on July 15, 1997, in South Beach, Miami, the peace of the morning is shattered by the sound of two gunshots fired at Gianni Versace. Once, right on the left-hand side, sort of right in the neck. And then Versace evidently turned slightly after the first shot, and Cunanan came from the right side and shot him again. And Versace died instantly. He was brain dead. I heard these two shots, and it was strange. I said, but what is it? I didn't realize right away that it was a shot. I ran out the door, and that's where Johnny was laying there at the entrance. That was really like, you know, the shocking moment of my life. I mean, I start to see black, completely black, and Johnny was there in the blood. And And Antonio was, who did this? Who did this? There was a, a lady standing outside the gate with her arm up, pointing. And then I saw the guy walking about 20 meters from us. And Antonio said, go get him. Lazarus, go get him. Go! Go! I went after him, um, and I yelled at him, you bastard. Stop! Just kept yelling at him, stop, stop. And that's when he was pointing the gun at me. Johnny! And for me, it was like, you know, killing myself. Versace is rushed to Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. He's pronounced dead at 9.21 a.m. The police quickly link the murder to Andrew Cunanan, and the hunt is on. The perimeter uh, that we had set up included a parking lot, which is located a couple blocks away. In a nearby parking lot, they find an abandoned red pickup truck. Next to the vehicle, they discover a discarded pile of clothes. The Miami police check the red truck's VIN number and trace it back to the New Jersey murder and Cunanan's matching 50 caliber bullets. Our investigation revealed that the red truck belonged to a victim of a homicide involving Andrew Cunanan. Uh, the victim uh, was from New Jersey, and uh, that's how the whole thing started to uh, snowball at that point. But despite scouring every inch of South Beach, they can find no trace of the killer. But Cunanan doesn't stay hidden for long. A Miami caretaker reports that a private houseboat nearby has been broken into and a shot has been fired. The police surround the houseboat. SWAT team eventually uh, made entry to the houseboat. During their search, they found uh, Andrew Cunanan's body uh, with a gun next to his body and a gunshot to his head. An autopsy reveals that Andrew Cunanan was not HIV positive after all.
Gianni Versace, meanwhile, is cremated and his ashes flown back to Italy. After a star-studded funeral, they're scattered at his villa in Lake Como, half an hour north of Milan, the city that had crowned him a king. What the world lost when Johnny was killed, the most creative, the kindest man I've ever met, one of the most intelligent men I've ever talked to. Lost a really happy guy, and a guy who was eager to share his happiness, eager to share his toys, happy to bring people into this dance that he'd invented. It lost someone charming, who still had a great deal of innocence, I think. It's impossible to forget. It is impossible to get out the images of his blood, the body and the blood. I mean, that is an image that will be always with me. I still suffer for him, of course. John is a part of my life, and we always be. Since moving in with his parents, his use has increased steadily. 
It's caused tension with his father, having junkies and dealers constantly coming to the house. When Marvin came back to LA, he just wanted to be left alone, but everybody came out of the woodwork. So there was constant traffic at the house day and night. Any normal household doesn't have 20 or 30 people coming and going all day long, every day. And it gets old very quick. And, and Father was just tired of it. It's a little too much activity for him. He liked to remain peaceful in his room without any activity going on around him. Marvin and his father have been locked in a power struggle since he was a child. But now Marvin is the breadwinner. He bought the family home in L.A., a fact his father resents. There's a struggle between who's going to be the head of that family. And theories, life and religion and everything else. All the blow and everything that's going on there in his house. His father would think, I guess. Which it was, I guess. The one person who's always held the family together is Marvin's mother. She has her own bedroom between her husband and her son. I think the, the deal that Marvin had was he started putting his mother in the middle of it because, you know, I can't fight you back there, but I can get mama for you. And, and she loved him to death. And uh, he, he basically used his mom, you know, against his dad. Marvin's mom, in many ways, was a peacemaker and a negotiator and a referee and a nurturer. I think that she was his anchor. I think that she was the one place that he felt loved. My father always knew there was a closeness between um, Marvin and his wife. He always knew that. Marvin's father is jealous of their relationship and his son's success. They were like in two different worlds. They didn't acknowledge each other. I've never seen such a strained relationship between two people. You could kind of feel uh, the vitriol. You know, there, there seemed to be some love there, but it just, they were always in conflict. They were always seemingly in conflict. 22 hours, the bitter hatred between father and son will explode in violence. Forty-five years before, in Washington, D.C., Marvin Pence Gay was born, the second of four children, the son of a preacher. My father was a very strict man. Um, he believed in um, discipline, very much so, and being a man minister in a church, <clears throat> and you know what people say about preachers' children, <laughs> sometimes feel the worst, I've heard that all my life, <laughs> so he was determined we were not going to be the worst. He just wanted the perfect family, and Everything had to run the way that father wanted it because he had this dream of, you know, the perfect family. 
Marvin's father enforced his will through violence. We were punished, and Marvin received more punishment than the rest of us because he was a, a maverick. I always called him that. Even as a child, he did things differently. Marvin would test father. Frankie would tell me Marvin would test father a, lo a lot. The power struggle that they had actually was... Um, um, in many ways, a, a, a way that Marvin sought approval and acceptance from his dad. Instead of using compassion, softness, tenderness, then he began to dictate and dominate. And he became a force, a power in his family, which turned his children. Marvin suffered routine whippings. He also had to endure the shame of having a father who wore women's clothing. His father was not only a cross-dresser, but he was a very flamboyant and um, out there cross-dresser. He'd have his little, you know, ladies' slippers on, bumps, and, you know, slide around sandal things, and waltz around. He was proud of it, so he didn't care. Neighbors knew about Marvin's father. Kids called him names, sissy and homosexual. Uh, the image of his dad as a preacher, this powerful, cross-dressing, church-front preacher who would come home and wear his wife's clothes. The shame that that imposed upon Marvin. Marvin's childhood was a daily torment, full of pain and confusion. His salvation was music. At age five, Marvin began singing. Hey Siri, call my boyfriend. You don't have a boyfriend. In gospel. Praise.